You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash crimes, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash crimes to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash crimes. Hello and happy Tuesday. When we first FOIAed for Alec Murdoch's jailhouse phone calls in December 2021, we had no idea the Pandora's box that we would open across the state. Since we first published the calls, and since Dick Harputlian and Jim Griffin made great efforts to stop their release, the issue of inmate privacy and whether these phone calls represent an infringement of people's rights has come up in a few other cases. In today's episode, Eric, Liz, and I talk about one of those cases, a horrific tragedy involving a fatal DUI crash in the Charleston, South Carolina area that left a bride dead and severely injured a groom. The couple was driving away from the happiest day in their lives when a 25-year-old woman, whose BAC was allegedly almost three times the legal limit, plowed into their golf cart. The issue of inmate phone calls being public information is an important one, especially in light of what this set of calls reveals about a justice system that repeatedly seems to offer special favors to people who have access to power and money. Later on the show, we dispel some misinformation that's being reported in the Stephen Smith case and we clarify what is really going on there. Eric gives us some advice on how to avoid getting overcharged by your attorney, while Liz and I share some tips on how to get your case championed by reporters to get some well-needed sunshine. We talk about a lot on this episode. So much that we're sharing an extended version with our Lunashark Premium members. Learn more at lunashark.supercast.com. So let's get into it. Cups up, guys. How are you doing? Cups up. Doing great. Cups up. Happy Father's Day to you. Thank you very much. It was a... It was a did you have a good one? I did. I did. We had a really good time. Um, it was, you know, getting over... Uh, Coco, she came home in her little urn and Renee put her under a chair where she always sits when Renee works. And so Aww. Renee feels better. And uh, Stella went by, smelled her a little bit and walked by. So did you guys see that the Innocence Project is honoring 
the one and only. The one and only. Judge Carmen Mullen. Yeah. Mandy, do you want to talk about that a little? <laughs> sure. Um, I got beat up on Instagram <laughs> this weekend. I, yeah. You did? Why? Well, I commented on their post and said, okay, so the post was honoring George Stinney, which that's, what happened to him is a horrible thing. And, but that is separate from what's going on with Carmen Mullen. And one of the slides said something, it was, uh... Quoting Carmen Mullen saying this was an injustice and Carmen Mullen was the judge that reversed it, blah, 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 which is a fact. But now that we know everything that we know about Carmen Mullen and now that we know how all of this works, right? Like, so I made a comment saying that, like, you can honor him without mentioning Carmen Mullen. Um, we are currently begging our bar to investigate her and having a post making her look like she's this hero of South Carolina, which what it, it, which is essentially what it did. They didn't have to say Carmen Mullen is a hero. But, like, judges like Carmen Mullen, of course they want to be mentioned by the Innocence Project. Of course, like, that makes them look good. And when the bar is considering whether or not to investigate someone or whether or not to attack, they can say, I mean, look at the, this national, the Innocence Project says that she's a good judge. So it just doesn't do good for the cause. <laughs> and it and it's highly disappointing. Can we compartmentalize, though, Mandy? Can we compartmentalize do we have that ability to do that to say, okay, on on one hand here, she did something really good in terms of, you know, extending somebody's civil liberties and making sure that there wasn't a wrongful conviction. And then on the other hand, you know, there are the other issues with Alex. Can we compartmentalize? Can you mention that, yes, she has this innocent project, but also trail it with, but she is being investigated regarding Alex Merrill. Maybe you could do both at the same time instead of doing neither. What do you think? Yeah, and that's a good question, and, and people mention that too. Um, and the and I think every, I think until we get answers on an investigation, everything that she's ever done is in question, and I really question her intentions and her involvement in that. Now looking back, and also looking back. Did a real deep dive on her and um, her mentions in newspapers from like 1990 to now, and a vast majority of her newspaper mentions were about that case. Like she got huge, huge recognition and press for that case. And the question is, would another judge have done it? Was it that hard of a thing for her to do? You know. What do you think, Liz? I would say compartmentalization is a talent that we as women are just cultivating from the time we're born, because there's a whole lot that we have to put into different boxes at all times in order just to survive the day. So we're good at that. And I think you can compartmentalize to the extent that the, the act itself, great. I'm glad you did it. You don't need to mention the person who did it, because I question it given Jim Griffin's predilection for mentioning the innocence project in the same sentence as the name Alec Murdoch, which happy Father's Day to you, murderer. Uh, hope you had a good one. <laughs> hope you had a good prison or prison Father's Day. I hope they gave you an extra special bologna sandwich. Um, but yeah, Jim Griffin often mentions the innocence project as something for Alec. And obviously, I would, and I don't mean to speak for you, Mandy, but we support their work. Uh, they're great. Yeah, totally. In the case of George Stinney, he was already 
deceased. So this was a symbolic thing, right? I mean, we can agree that this was good symbolically. But then you look at Carmen's relationship with Casey Manning, Judge Casey Manning, often described, Eric, you've described her as an acolyte of his, that that he was a father figure to her, is a father figure to her. He's an incredibly powerful judge, was well-respected up until recently. Um, what? How did she end up with this case at a time when she was catching a lot of flack for her decisions in the, was it the Quinn case that was happening around that same time? So you have her credibility being called into question. And then suddenly she has this case, which I don't want to detract from it if this was like a passion project of hers, but I don't know that for a fact that it was. So I think compartmentalization can happen. But the problem is, is that we just don't know, was this a PR move from the beginning for her? And is it a PR move now? Right. And I really want people to recognize that because like, as soon as I started recognizing PR moves amongst um, politicians, <laughs> you just kind of can see things in an entirely different light. Like if you just take a step back and say like, is what Carmen Mullen did, was that brave? Was that, or was that just an easy move um, to get people on your side? And if you see what happened in the press afterwards with her, oh my gosh, they fell right into her lap. Like it was profile after profile of this amazing judge who did this amazing thing. And yes, it should have been done and it should have been done sooner the than Carmen Mullen, but you just have to question why. And I just, it, it was just disappointing to see that from the Innocence Project. I think the, I think you could talk about the case in a way that's more responsible because again, it's the Innocence Project. And I mean, Carmen Mullen was caught on tape saying, uh, basically trying to entrap a man and the Innocence Project should be completely against somebody like that. You would think. So I get that the Innocence Project wants to highlight judges because it, they want to provide that motivation for more judges to do the right thing. And what a judge is like, probably things named after them, like bridges. And I know Judge Manning has a bridge named after him or a stretch of road named after him now. Um, so they like to see their name up there. Good incentive. I completely understand that. But they should probably Google the names of the judges, just in the same way that, you know, all those projects in South Carolina with journalists revisiting all these bridges and streets named after all these powerful men, mostly, and then finding that so many of them have bad acts associated with their name that just sort of got compartmentalized, if you will, um, that you have to just put in another can. Meanwhile, Harriet Tubman Bridge is you don't even realize you're on a bridge. It's like it's in the it's in the boonies in uh, Beaufort County as you go into Colleton County. I've seen the same thing over and over where people just want to people refuse to believe that this person can this person that they thought that they know could be capable of doing. And they just it's it's a natural instinct to just see tunnel vision when it comes to a person and with the Joe Paterno thing, remember that they like had like crowds of people rioted and things when they tried to tear the statue, like people stood up for it and it was just crazy. And it's like, is Alex's situation like Joe Paterno because Joe Paterno over the years had a number of assistant coaches and graduate assistants that he um, had respect for. They came to him and said, look, we're seeing stuff with Jerry Sandusky and, and these young 
boys in the locker room, in the shower. And one graduate assistant said, I walked in and he was had this one kid pushed to the wall. And Joe Paterno just turned a blind eye or just reported it up the chain and never investigated. Did people like do that with Alex, you think? Did you think they saw those kind of things and and just turned the other way or turned a blind eye or... Well, don't you think that happened as well? I think it goes back to the compartmentalization thing that you said, Eric, because I think, let's say with PMPED, there's some self-interest there when it comes to not seeing things for the way they are. So when it's brought to their attention that Alec has cashed Randy's check and not just one, but two of them, including the one that he had rewritten for him, uh, they choose to look at it from a different way, right? They give the benefit of the doubt to them, or it doesn't behoove them to look that closely. And so that said, when you look at PMPD and what they have on the road ahead of them, they did a forensic accounting after they found out about Alex's misdeeds. What did they find out during that forensic accounting, for instance? So and what actions did they take afterward? Did they did they look into all cases or did they look into the ones that were the most obvious or were there things that they overlooked? Did they look into those ex inflated expenses, for instance, that we keep hearing about? So it, it, that's the problem. I think that it you just have so many. I think uh, corruption is like a cancer and that it's hard to separate the person who did the corrupt thing from the people who allowed the person to do the corrupt thing. So when you see something like Judge Carmen Mullen being like <laughs> getting to take a bow in a time where she should not be, uh, that's that's the same thing, right? Like you're you're co-signing on her corruption to a certain extent. You have to protect your association with that person and hope that they're they're the ones that are innocent, I guess. So I think that's what happened with Alec. I think it was compartmentalization. Yeah, people turn and turning a blind eye because they can benefit from the person who's doing something bad in one way or another. Um, I think that that's been a hard thing to, for me to swallow in the last few years is to like kind of realizing how many people could have stopped this and nobody did. And I hope that that's the lesson that we take away from all of this, that like, if you see something, say something, and it doesn't matter if you're benefiting from that person or not. One act of theft is too many. Right. Okay. So one act of theft is too many, uh, you would think, right? But I think that we're always searching for absolution in the people who are in our lives because we want them to be innocent. Well, you get absolution at church on Sunday. You don't get it Monday through Saturday. Monday through Saturday, it's the job of the people that you have, that supervise you, that work with you, that have duties independent to clients and independent to court system. You know, absolution comes on Sunday. It doesn't come through Monday through Saturday. Monday through Saturday, you don't give absolution. You you call people out. That's right. And but it's, I think just in ordinary life, it can be difficult to call people out because we don't always think we know the full picture or enough. And uh, and that and that brings us to the Jamie Lee Komorowski case out of the Charleston area. She's the 25 year old who was driving 65 in a 25 mile per hour zone and struck a just married couple on their golf cart. So one of the things that came out about this case is uh, an issue that obviously is near and dear to our hearts, and that was the release of jailhouse calls that Jamie Lee had with her family members and her boyfriend and such. And it raises a good question 
obviously that we're going to talk about today, but I want to start at the beginning. And the reason uh, we've said this so many times, but the reason that we had originally foiled for Alec Murdoch's calls in jail, one, we knew that they were public information. And I had done that before in another case that I had covered. So I knew that they, you know, that they would get it. What I wasn't sure of was them giving it to me while the case was open. That surprised me. We got them. And the reason we wanted them was because we wanted to see what, if any, special treatment Alec might have been getting in jail. We wanted to see what kinds of conversations he was having in terms of like string pulling and uh, trying to affect the outcome of his case or his bond or what have you. And sure enough, it was a treasure chest of information uh, that not only give us insight into his mind and how he thinks and how his family operates, but give us insight into some of the things that he uh, was doing that behind bars still. And in Jamie Lee Komorowski's case, not only does it give you insight into her frame of mind, is she remorseful? Yes. Is she, you know, uh, feeling bad for herself? Yes. But it also showed you that the sheriff of Charleston County had apparently visited her and was apparently in touch with her family, giving her what looks to be special treatment behind bars. So we wouldn't have known that if those calls had not been foiled for. But now the sheriff's office is not giving out those calls, the same sheriff's office that the sheriff was apparently visiting her from behind bars. So I think from my perspective, I think these calls are important because of things like this. We would not have known this stuff otherwise, right, Mandy? Right. And I mean, looking back on the Alex Murdoch phone calls, we learned so much insight from those phone calls and not only about what he was doing in jail, but we we learned about how little he cared about the murders and how and how insensitive he was to his son, Buster, and his feelings like go hunt. You know, it's plentiful, you know, go hunt deer, or if you're not going to do it, I'll get Corey to do it. We planted sunflowers, you know, go to law school, do all this. And, you know, it was like he didn't realize Buster lost his brother and his mother. I mean, there was a disconnect, you know? Yeah, huge. And it just gave really, really excellent insight into, because at that point, still, Alex was largely... I mean, he was exposed as a crook, but a lot of people didn't believe that he did the murders at all. And he wasn't arrested for the murders. And it just gave a different insight on what he was doing behind bars. And he was not acting like an innocent person. But yeah, I mean, I I think that that's really... Uh, did the sheriff's office give a reason for why they're not releasing this time? Yeah, that uh, the case is open and that they don't want to. And this is what I thought that Richland County was going to say to me, which is that there is a part of FOIA that allows them not to release them until this person has gone through the prosecution process. So they don't want to affect the outcome of this person's trial because people are innocent before, you know, until proven guilty. So, of course, like I can understand. And I guess, Eric... I want to ask you, I mean, you've been a defense attorney before. You've defended people. Um, I would imagine, like, if your defense attorney hat's on right now, you don't want your client's calls being re released to the public, right? No. No. And I want my client to be as remorseful and sympathetic and, and generate empathy as much as possible. Not talking about myself, but talking about 
wonder what the family's going through. How are you guys doing? Is life difficult because of things that I did? You know, just keep the conversations at a very general high level, 30,000 foot level. Yes, you can meet with your attorney. You can lament to your attorney, but those are privileged conversations. But, you know, knowing that these conversations could be released, you know, you want to make sure your client is saying the right things. So to be clear, a privileged conversation would be the attorney-client privilege, which means that the public doesn't get to access those calls. Or the sheriff or law enforcement. Nor does the sheriff, correct. So law enforcement can't listen to those. And it was really funny because when this story was being shared about the sheriff's office now saying that they're not going to release those phone calls, uh, Jim Griffin commented on a post on Twitter saying that obviously he agrees with that decision because this is hurtful to people's you know innocence and so um i was laughing because one of them was like you didn't even register yourself as an attorney to have Alex calls protected in the first place like says the guy who didn't even do the thing that you're supposed to do so eric what are you supposed to do if your client's behind bars and you want to talk to him on the phone well, you, you identify yourself as an attorney and you say, this is a privileged conversation and it cannot be recorded. And if anybody's listening to it, please get off now because I'm about to talk attorney client privilege stuff. So you, you preface it. So if somebody breaks that privilege and records it or uses it, because there was, um, in the early 2000, there was a assistant solicitor in Lexington County, Joe McCullough was on the case and the assistant solicitor was Fran Humphreys. And he was listening to lawyer-client conversations that were taking place uh, at the jail or um, or in the court or in the courthouse, and there were recordings. And he was disciplined and transferred. He ended up in Myrtle Beach, but Joe McCullough uh, brought that to light that there were they were listening to pure attorney-client privilege conversations. So that's what you would do. I try not to have those kind of conversations with my client. Uh, because they're in a bullpen and o- others can overhear them, like jailhouse snitches could overhear them talking, you know, in the in the different compartments. So I, I go visit and you go in a room and, and you say this is, again, I always preface it. This is an attorney hiring privilege conversation. We're discussing uh, privilege matters, trial strategy, work product. This can't be recorded. So that's how you cover yourself. So you also, though, have the option, or I suppose that you're supposed to do this, so aren't you supposed to register your phone number with the uh, jail so that they can recognize immediately from? So in addition to registering your phone number so that it's easily identifiable as privileged, you would say in the phone call as well, I'm the attorney, do not be recording, you cannot listen to what we're about to say. So one of the things that was said over and over after, you know, there are a few people that gave us some uh, flack after we published the Alex calls. Um, those calls are, you're very well aware as an inmate that you're being recorded. You're very well aware that um, they tell you. There's signs right on the walls. They tell you on the call, every phone call starts off that way. The person that is that you're calling is aware that they're being recorded. In Alex's case, he was constantly reminding people that were being recorded. In Jamie Lee's case, uh, her father, you know, is even saying to her, basically shut up, stop talking. When people are isolated, 
in jail, they they have this tendency to talk, get diarrhea of the mouth, and they they're they're told do not stop stop, but they're so isolated, they're they're you know partnering with their thoughts every minute of the day. They have nobody to share them with, and so they can't help themselves. And so many times throughout uh, investigative history. Um, things are said on a phone call that absolutely cook the goose of the defendant because every time a defendant talks, it's called an admission by a party opponent. So if you're not talking to a lawyer or to somebody who's a, uh, in a privileged capacity, to like your physician, if you're talking to a family member or a friend or a fellow inmate, whatever you say can be used against you. If somebody comes up to you and says, you killed Mandy, and I just sit there and I smile, they can use the fact that I didn't respond and say, hell no, I didn't kill Mandy. Why were you accusing me of that? They would say my silence is in the form of an admission because I was challenged and I, sh if I'm innocent, I should have spoken up and said, you're out of your freaking mind, I didn't kill Mandy. So every single thing, every interaction, every conversation is is never to your benefit, never to your benefit. We'll be right back. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people who had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Want to temporarily restore definition in your jawline where it's been lost over time? With Juvederm Volux XC, you can get a non-surgical jawline treatment that adds volume for smooth contour and to reduce the appearance of jowls in one in-office treatment with little downtime. Juvederm Volux XC injectable gel is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injections like redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Going back to the jailhouse calls, Mandy, do you think, because like, we, we can be on the line about some things, you know, um, do you feel like it's unfair to people to have their calls released from jail 
prior to their trial or their plea deal or whatever? I don't know. And I've been thinking about this a lot because I think that uh, you kind of opened Pandora's box here. with just showing South Carolina like you can do this and I'm glad that we did that at the time I'm glad um but the scary thing is that I don't know we're always told we were always just trying to make sure that the we were clear that this was not for entertainment so the answer is I don't know because I do but somebody on Twitter did make a good point which is like so why did they record them if they should not be public um, and that's a good question. I mean, I think with the way that they, with the way that it is right now, um, prisoners should all know that their calls are being recorded and their calls could be subject to FOIA and that's everywhere in that message. So I think it, they, they should be released because there, it, it tells you a lot about the person, um, over time, you know, it doesn't, you don't go to trial immediately after your arrest and, a lot of information is learned, whether it's in the jail with people talking or on the phone, or you have the situation where um, people are sending signals, you know, from the jailhouse to people outside in a cryptic way or using, you know, one word code terms. I mean, it's just the benefit is too great as opposed to the infringement on somebody's liberties or privacy. I think you lose a little bit of your privacy. You lose a lot of your privacy. These aren't people that even get to dress. I mean, they're dressing. They're naked in front of people. They're right. They're going to the bathroom in front of each other. Like right. Yeah. Yes, I was saying we. You're innocent until proven guilty. However, you become part of the penal system, awaiting trial if you're in jail, and the rules of society of freedom of association and privacy and all that. You are given up when you go in the jailhouse door. I never forget um, my best friend. Uh, you know, he's a he was a felon. He did a year and a day. I've talked about it, and he went in uh, prison, and he walked in and he got in a fight almost immediately, and they put him in solitary confinement. And his wife kept calling for three weeks. She couldn't get in touch with him. And finally, one of the assistant wardens called her back and said. Hey, look, you, you do realize your husband is in prison and there are rules here that you, aren't ordinary societal rules. And that's what we have. For sure. I'm actually really happy to hear you say that, Eric, because I, you know, I know as a lawyer, especially someone who's done defense work, you would tend to, like I said, not want uh, the public listening in. But going back to it, it's like we are... We have already seen through Alec Murdoch, like the jailhouse calls revealed things that spoke to his character, but also spoke to the system itself. And now with Jamie Lee Komorowski, we're seeing things that speak to the system themselves. So once again, we're finding out that she was allowed to visit. She was given special things that aren't normally granted, like a visit with her family. The sheriff arranged for her to visit her family. Um the sheriff was allegedly, according to the the call, at least through Jamie Lee Komorowski's impression of the their conversations, was indicating that she didn't think she belonged in jail. Uh, and again, I say, like, I mean, she, and, and she's acting like it's something that happened to her. She kept saying, "Why is this happening?" While also showing remorse. But while is why is this happening? You drank too much and you got behind the wheel of a car. In addition to knowing that your calls are being recorded, it's well established from the time you're like. 
eight years old, you know that drunk people shouldn't drive. You know that there's an inherent risk in getting behind the wheel. Don't be speeding. I mean, like there are things that that's why it happened. There's easy answers for that, Jamie Lee. That's how it happened. So yeah, you get a lot of insight into that. But I do think that the public has a right to know what goes into prosecuting cases. And I think when we go back to what we were saying about Carmen Mullen and the Innocence Project, there's also these calls can also reveal people's innocence, right? They can also reveal somebody who didn't do the thing that they're being accused of or who doesn't seem like they did the thing that they're being accused of. Uh, so I, I don't know. I think if we're going to have faith and trust in our justice system, I do think this is one of the many bricks that goes into creating a solid foundation for that. So that's just my opinion. I thought I think we learned so much about Alex through those phone calls, more so than if we almost sat down and interviewed him because he's so narcissistic, you wouldn't be able to trust the answers that you're getting. I think we we got really inside his head and said, this is the uh, the mind of a madman. I mean, he has no uh, empathy towards his son. He's not outraged as to why am I in jail? Somebody else did this. Let's hire people. You know, I'm, I'm an innocent man. I never heard those words. I mean, that's the first thing I would say is I am innocent. Especially if you're an attorney who realizes, like, who understands the import of of the recorded calls. That would be every call. Be like, my name is Alec Murdoch, and I did not do this stuff. <laughs> but, right. Right. <laughs> His mantra was like, "That's your mantra, you know, Buster. You need to get into law school." But like, I just want to say one more thing. Just like looking. I mean, I think that it was extremely insightful because. We got the in-between of Alex the monster and Alex who he presents to the public. Because a narcissist knows how to... They know how to put on a face and create an act, like, in the... And manipulate and but they all but when they're on these phone calls and I do not I think that Alex always thought the system was going to cover him and there's no way that they would release his phone calls I think he just always thought Dick and Jim got me Bo um, I'm not like everybody else I don't really care about the rules whatever and again that shows a lot about his personality so I think like Alex just I, I think that information that we got from there was so powerful and important. And uh, circling back, I also think that it's it's perfectly legal. There's no question about it being legal or not legal. It's just if they should change the laws to protect other people. Um, but another thing that we have to bring up is that like when Alex was making a lot of those phone calls, it was during COVID and a lot of inmates didn't get regular visits in the way that they do now. And so, so like you're saying with that, that social interaction um, that they would normally get from a face-to-face -face, and we got that on the phone calls because Alex didn't have visitors. <laughs> and the other thing that somebody who worked in the prison system emailed me the other day and was like, if you're foying for phone calls, um, give up basically because he, Alex probably has a cell phone and for like the first day, he probably got a contraband cell phone. And that's just the way that it goes in there, which is crazy. So Eric, what kind of updates do you have for us with Steven Smith? Because we've been seeing a lot of stuff out there that is, um, I guess indicating that there is they're real close to some arrest. Is that accurate? No. 
they're real close to making progress. Progress is being made. I know that there was um, uh, one of the television uh, announced television uh, personalities who said that you know the state has five suspects. No, no, no. They don't have five suspects. They have five or so people that they believe have relevant information. So you don't have to be a suspect, but you can have information that could lead to other information. So uh, this is what I've said from the, the last two, three weeks since I talked to Chief Keel last. He said, there is a grand jury, there is progress being made, that they believe that there are five or so people or a little more who have relevant information and we are issuing subpoenas. That's it. So I extrapolated from that that I believe progress is being made and that I would be surprised if we didn't hear something before Labor Day because it's not as complicated as the the murders of Paul and Maggie if you have five people that have information and you bring them before a grand jury and then somebody invokes their Fifth Amendment right and unless they're given immunity, now you start to crack people. So I just think we're making progress. I don't... So it's the state grand jury that's impaneled, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. Why wouldn't it be the county grand jury? Uh, what's the difference? Don't know. I don't know if it's not. A, okay. I don't know if it's a statewide grand jury or a county grand jury. He didn't tell me well, that. Well, I think we know because county grand juries just sign off on the indictment. They don't do investigations. So if, if they're testifying in front of the grand jury, we know it's the state, right? We can... I would hope. Pretty safely mm-hmm. say that. Yeah. I don't... Because the local grand juries don't as far as I know, do any questioning of suspects or people of interest, and they don't examine the evidence. They just listen to the summary that's presented to them by the sheriff's office, I think usually does it, or or the police department that made the arrest. The question would be, why would the state grand jury do it right? The state grand jury handled the murder cases of Maggie and Paul, but that was highly unusual. They don't handle murder cases. Those are typically handled by the prosecutor's office and law enforcement and presented to the cop, the county grand jury. So maybe there wasn't trust um, on SLED's part with a local grand jury, and maybe there's some law enforcement or governmental figures right. involved that it implicates the statewide grand jury. It It's telling that the state, so either it's connected to the Murdochs in some way, uh, whether that's, you know, potential obstruction of justice, uh, whether direct involvement, who knows. But there's something of import that has raised it to this level, right? So, and that's continued to keep it at this level, my opinion, Eric. And I, I think it just means that it's more complicated than a typical, which we already knew that. I mean, it's a very complicated case and there's a lot of tentacles to it. But what I was surprised by... Um, this one former FBI agent, and she comments on a lot of just random true crime stuff. I follow her on Twitter. She posted the news about the Stephen Smith's uh, grand jury being impaneled and said something about uh, this probably uh, this means that they're closer to a suspect, um, but pro- likely not Buster. And I thought that that was weird. People just say things sometimes where it's like, I don't think, where are you getting that information from? Like, right. we don't know that if it's, we don't know. Buster or not Buster. Right. It's not Buster or Warbuster. Right. We're not, we're not saying anything about Buster. 
So is she a local? Is she in no. the state, Mandy? Or where is uh, she out of? So what the heck? I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? I've just seen so much. It's so hard because because I know that people care about this case being solved. And I get asked all the time by people that you just wouldn't even think, even know that South Carolina is a state of relevance. Um, you know, what's going on with Stephen Smith will stand to get answers. And so it's just, you know, I know people's hearts are in the right place for the most part, but it's just interesting this sort of push still that's going on to... Um, I'm sorry that Buster's name was in it. I'm sorry, but he's going to be mentioned until it's he's been cleared, until SLED comes out and says unequivocally this man was not involved. So I haven't heard that. Uh, have you heard that, Eric? I mean, you no, no. You know, I don't get that granular detail again um, on whether Buster is involved or Buster is not involved. Um, he is more giving me just the encouragement and enthusiasm that they are making progress and they're they're devoting the resources to it. Look, I think SLED's on a roll. I think the AG's on a roll. And I think that there's every incentive in the world for Chief Keel and Alan Wilson to provide answers on this because it really shows how competent SLED is. They're on a roll with what they did with Alex. They're on a roll with the financial crime stuff. It really shows a level of competency. And especially if Alan Wilson wants to run for governor, He's going to have a pretty good record if he's able to solve the Stephen Smith uh, death. Look what he did with Alex in terms of the murders. Look what he did with Alex in terms of uh, the financial crimes. The question is, uh, will he implicate others and will they go after other people, whether it's judges or other lawyers? He's got a pretty robust record he could start running on for governor and it's, it's, he's got some chops. Right. Judges, uh, lawyers, and members of law enforcement. So I think especially when we're talking about Stephen Smith's case, we've got to include them as well and and the potential for them being held accountable because there's a few there, one in particular um, in law enforcement who I think needs to be held accountable. And I think SLED's aware of it. It's just, why is this person still employed? You know, you start to ask that question, like, do I have this completely wrong? I don't think I do. Um, based on what I'm hearing out there. But yeah, I think all these people should be very, very worried. What's happening on the ODC level that we don't have a director yet? <coughs> it's been two or three or months, three or four months. In the ODC, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. said? Yeah, exactly. Why is that being held open, Supreme Court? Why are you holding that position open and is work getting done? Look, we're almost in June. The legislature's almost completed. Um, that should have been like immediate, right? Right. The Office of Disciplinary Council needs to have a freaking uh, leader. Right. They need a director. So we're, they need a director. I don't understand, uh, but I do understand. It's just, it, I think it's just so galling that it's just like after everything, they continue to try and do the things that they were doing to begin with. And we'll be right back. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. 
Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. As y'all know, we're out on the West Coast connecting with fans, meeting with partners, and having a little fun too. All the planes, trains, and automobiles can be stressful. But do you know what's going to keep me comfy and confident along the way? You guessed it, Biori. And Viore makes a fantastic gift for the people in your life who deserve the most comfortable and versatile clothing. Viore is an investment in your happiness. For our listeners, they are offering 20% off your first purchase. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet at viore.com slash COJ. That's V-U-O-R-I dot com slash COJ. Not only will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns. Go to viore.com slash COJ and discover the versatility of Viore clothing. So Eric, we have a question for you. Our courtroom question of the day. How can somebody manage their hourly attorney and protect themselves from getting overcharged? Because that is, I think, uh, you feel like you're standing on the edge of a cliff when you have an attorney who you've given a retainer to and you realize like they're making more money than um, 99% of everyone you've ever known in your life per hour and you can't really control who's doing the work and what, you know, so every phone call becomes perilous because you're thinking, I can't focus on the issue at hand because I'm thinking about, are you draw are you drawing out the conversation with me? Are you, um, is this necessary what you're doing right now? That kind of thing. So are there, can you think of anything that people can do to sort of mitigate that? Because lawyers are important. They're important relationships to have. Now, in fairness to lawyers, you know, we represent a lot of different people. And if phone calls come in and we have to stop what we're doing on another matter to, to answer your phone call or keep up with the email traffic, like, like Alex Murdoff, I was building, building by the hour. You know, yes, I made a fortune on a contingency fee. I make no apologies on that. But just if I was billing by the hour, I have over 6,000 emails. And in a fee agreement, you get the charge for receiving emails, writing emails, text messages, uh, receiving, sending, phone calls. The fee agreement controls what is going to be being billed. And oftentimes, the client just signs at the end. It's a three-page fee agreement. And I set forth what I bill for. I bill for travel time. I bill for phone calls. I bill for memos. I bill for this. And essentially, you won't know until the next month what you've been charged. You get your bill for uh, May, but now I'm doing all my June time and the person sits there and waits and says, oh my God, I'm seeing all these emails coming through and all these phone calls that he's having with me. What's my bill going to look like on July 3rd or 4th? when I get the June bill. So um, you you have to sit down with your lawyer and, and say, look, I only have this finite amount of money. I recognize that you're 
going to be billing for your time or whatever, maybe negotiate a flat fee or cap the fee or do a blended hourly fee that converts into a contingency where the, the lawyer can only bill a certain amount of money and then it it, it would be a contingency fee for the rest of the fee, or I've done situations where my normality rates 400 to $450 an hour, where I get a blended contingency hourly fee and I only bill it $150 an hour or $100 an hour. But it's our stock and trade. We don't sell a commodity. I don't sell a, a tongue depressor that I can bill for or gauze or medicine. It's just my time. And it is uncommon um not it's not a fun thing to get those legal bills in the mail especially when that envelope is thick because you know it's four and five pages of itemized billing but you'll know after that first month of billing how much time is being spent two you should save up your phone calls because i bill on 0.25 an hour not 0.10 some lawyers bill 0.10 on tenths of an hour I bill 0.25. So if you called me and had a five minute conversation, I'm billing you for 0.25. So save your phone calls. But I have clients that'll call me four, five, six, seven, eight times a day. And you know, I gotta stop what I'm doing. And I'm in the service business. I'm not upset about that, but please understand I have other clients. And so there are ways to effectively manage your lawyer to limit your phone calls, and have an outline of what you want to talk to your lawyer about so that you're prepared. Um, and when you're negotiating your fee, the fee agreement, you know, say, look, I don't want to get hammered on emails and text messages where it's one line. I'd, I'd like you to combine four or five of them and, and do that. Um, but you have the flexibility of negotiating a fixed fee, a blended fee, a lower hourly rate, um, but you are a prisoner month to month until you get that invoice in the mailbox. That 30 days, you're on hot pins and needles because you're wondering what's being done because you see all these emails coming across and all these phone calls and you know you're being billed for it. Right. So you can come back. Do you think if you have an attorney, could somebody come back to the attorney and say, listen, can we talk about our method of communication? Yeah. It happens all the time. I would like to have one meeting a week. Yep no more than 30 minutes. And what happens if you sense that your attorney isn't really getting the issue because they have so many other clients. So it's kind of like your doctor doesn't remember you from visit to visit and what your last complaint was. So then you're, you feel like you're constantly like having to reacclimate your... I have a right to educate myself on the subject matter. I'm not a an expert on everything. So if you right. come to me for an estate problem, I have the right to research and get myself up to the level of confidence and you got to pay for it one time or every time one time it's my job to tell you up front hey i've not had this kind of case before i'm going to have to research this and read a lot and get up to speed and it's probably going to cost you 10 grand so i have a job i have a duty to tell you this is um you know it deals with estate tax or some kind of family court matter or some kind of erisa matter you know employment matter that's my job to tell you that. But I, I don't have a right to constantly re-educate myself if like the case is hot today. But then it gets continued. And then it gets comes up back in the fall and I have to reread all these deposition transcripts. No, 
that gets a little dicey if I'm going to start charging the client every single time full bore for getting back up to speed if my memory isn't good enough that I'm remember not remembering those things. So um, you, you should always feel comfortable to go to your attorney and say, look, you know, I don't think this is right. You know, I, I would like to see a, a, a budget make your attorney put a budget. I have to do that all the time where I just like in a house, you budget for food, you budget for utilities. I budget for a client what the discovery is going to cost, depositions, what expert witnesses are going to cost. And a client will say to me, well, can you take this to trial for less than $100,000? Um, I'll say maybe. You can't hold me to it. A lot of it depends on the defense on who they want to depose. Sometimes they get a defense lawyer who wants to run me through the grindstone and he'll depose everybody and their mother. And so I'm sitting there for six, seven hours a day on these stupid depositions on very tangential witnesses. Um, I'm sorry, that's part of the process. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you have said there's some sort of uh, agency that people can have over their cases though, just in having these conversations with attorneys. Take ownership. Take ownership. We work for, I work for the client. The client doesn't work for me. I am in the service business and I have to serve and I have to satisfy. And that's my job. And if I'm not serving or I'm not satisfying, I'm going to hear about it from my clients. Well, speaking of taking charge, we have a question that uh, is sort of related to that concept uh, for the newsroom. We have a newsroom question. How can victims find resources for sunlight when law enforcement appears to be neglecting their case? Uh, where do we start? And that, you know, I'll answer real quick here is just that goes back to ownership again. And it sucks because you're talking about very, very serious and emotional issues. But from the very beginning, I would say that you make it clear with you, with the uh, investigator handling your case, you get you get their name, you find out who is handling your case, you find out how to get in touch with them over email, whether they'll give you their cell phone. You don't need to harass them or anything, but you make it clear that if this is a situation where you can press charges that you intend to, and you check in with them once a week and just say, I would like to hear how, you know, what, what where do things stand? Uh, I think that people cannot be passive in any way when it comes to getting their cases through the system, because it's not a squeaky wheel situation, but certainly people are going to want to keep you from calling uh, and there, I think people are more apt to do their jobs to the fullest extent if they know that you are actively interested in the outcome. Yeah. And what to, are your thoughts, Mandy? And to get sunlight. So like, obviously the direct route is be pesky with the police department and who's handling your case, know the names, know who their bosses are, et cetera, et cetera. But if you need to go beyond that and you feel like this is a story for the news, um, I would highly suggest a couple of things. Um, be very, very nice when, <laughs> when approaching reporters with your story. Um, I know that you are frustrated with your case, but that is not the reporter's fault. And you should also not, I get a lot of people that come to me and in a, in a way that's like angry and upset with me from the get go. And like, I'm supposed to solve their problem immediately and drop everything. A lot of people, unfortunately have that attitude and they're not, they're just, you're not going to get anywhere because if you're a reporter, you can only carry so much and you can only deal with so much. And 
I hate to say this, but there is a, a type of victim that we need and we need victims who to work with a victim and expose their story and to get it out in the public. It's a very tricky situation. Um, but victims who do their homework first, those always are uh, a lot more likely to get your case seen and heard by reporters and get that in the news. If they just, if, if they know just the simple, like, here's the police report, here's the, here's uh, medical reports, um, people who are organized and have a file to give you, that definitely helps the process. Um, and just, and also just being patient. Um, Sandy Smith waited two years for me to do anything with her story, and she was never, she never, I've had victims get very nasty with me of like, I've been waiting. You haven't called me, uh, shame on you and say things like, I see that you're at your pool this weekend. <laughs> or like, I see that you're doing this. I see that you're doing that. And just know that, like, realize that reporters have to have lives. Everybody has to have a life and we can only take on so much at a time. And so, and don't take it personally when we don't, when one per one person doesn't have enough space and time for your story. And I would just really research, research the reporters that you go after, um, and know that they can handle the type of story that you're giving to them. If that makes sense. I'll tell you what has been very enlightening for me is since, uh, you know, you gave me the opportunity to, uh, be a podcaster. And so I get the, uh, a lot of emails to our website from the Sandy Smiths all over the country. And there are a lot of Sandy Smiths all over the country. It's very sad. My eyes have really been opened up of so many different people who are trying to get answers on family members that were killed or a death or something. They're not getting police department or they're getting the runaround or their case was dismissed. I mean, there are so many different Sandy Smiths out there and I'm not in the crime solving business. I'm a lawyer. I'm, I sue people. And, you know, I took on the Sandy Smith matter with Ronnie to, you know, jumpstart it, jumpstart the investigation, but not for us to do it. And I tell people that, you know, who are in South Dakota or in Iowa and, and they, they get mad at me and I understand their frustration because, you know, I'm supposed to be somebody that's different, you know, a voice and, um, but I can't, I can't help everybody and I feel horrible, but there are a lot of Sandy Smiths out there. That's what I have come to learn. A lot of frustrated parents and spouses and surviving spouses or surviving children. Um, it's really scary. That's the thing. I think, uh, going back to like, you, you've got to take control. You've got to be active because, the thing is, is and, and, and what we're getting at is that we don't just, you can't just hand us a pile of papers and, and then we're like, oh, cool, it's done. That's not how it works. You know, obviously we have to check everything and, and there's going to be more to it. But oftentimes it, there's not actionable issues because we, we can't take like, oh, and the police chief was dating his secretary and that's why this is it. Like that's, that's cool to know, um, but we need proof of it. So... Uh, you know, create a timeline, have a good timeline to hand to people. And proof that, and proof that it's relevant to the. And proof that it's relevant. Exactly. So I can't tell you how many times I've started looking into something 
only to find out that there's nothing, it's like water through your hands because there's nothing solid for me to hold on to. So have your facts written down for reporters, um, know what court it's in, know what county it happened in, know which police department. That's crazy. You know, I know this sounds crazy me saying that out loud, but so many people have come to me not even knowing, giving me the wrong police agency. That's not even the police agency that's handling your case. So unfortunately you've been put in a position as a victim to have to become your own best advocate. And that includes with journalists and it's, it's because it is very difficult work. It's not, it's not easy because we do not have subpoena power. We do not have the power to depose someone and be like, put it on the record now. What did you do? Like, that's just not how it works. So there's a lot of tedious work that we have to do. And the more you can do upfront, which comes down to getting your facts straight, having a timeline and having a file, having a file, start that file from day one, have the accident report, have the coroner's report and don't, don't withhold information, you know, to make it the story better. Tell us the bad stuff. You still can have a case or a story, but we need to know the negative. Don't, don't sugarcoat and tell me that your son or your daughter was the greatest in the world when they did have a little bit of a drug problem or they did have another law enforcement issue. Don't, that doesn't mean that they don't aren't entitled to justice or anything like that, but you know, it's a, don't sell it. Just give it to us. Let us be, be an objective. Right. No exaggerating either. Like I've had a lot of situations where people over exaggerate what happened and then you go to look at it and it sounds really bad. And then you spend a lot of time on it and then it's frustrating. And then you feel like you were lied to. And then that doesn't, and you need a, you need trust in that relationship between the lawyer and the client and the journalist and the victim. Their trust, if trust is broken there, then nothing gets done. And it's just really frustrating when, and I understand that people want to, uh, they just feel desperate and they want to exaggerate and they want to, uh, or, or sugarcoat and make the person sound a lot better than they are or whatever. But yeah, that doesn't help anything. It, it doesn't. And in fact, I, I listen more to people when they will start out with the bad stuff of like, look, she had her problems here, but let me tell you what's going on here. So that said, we have something special that we're going to be doing moving forward. We have a question for our listeners, and we're going to post it on social media. And there is merchandise for the winner who is selected from the correct answers. And this week's question is, what other states have secret disciplinary council meetings to investigate and determine sanctions against lawyers and judges? If you have the answer to that question, send it to info at lunasharkmedia.com. Woof woof. Woof woof. I think I'll bet bet you South Carolina is in the majority, that most states probably don't have sunshine in their disciplinary proceedings. What do you guys think? Probably not. Lawyers, Lawyers helping lawyers, man. Thank you guys for listening. It is cups down for me. See you guys next week. Eric, Mandy, have a great day. Cups down. Cups down. Cups down.
This Cup of Justice episode is created and hosted by me, Mandy Matney, with co-host Liz Farrell, our executive editor, and Eric Bland, attorney at law, a.k.a. the Jackhammer of Justice. From Luna Shark Productions. 